Leave in your turn, pleasant Tietos. Come, Laconian muse. Come, glorify the god of Amicli, worthy of our regard, and the mistress in the temple of bronze, and the noble Tindarii, who sport along the Eurotas. Come, enter the dance. Come with light bounds, that we may sing of Sparta, that loves the choruses of the gods and the beating of the dancing feet, when, like fillies, the girls leap beside the Eurotas, raising the dust with the rhythm of their feet, their hair tosses like that of the Bacchants, frolicking as they wave the Thyrsus, the daughter of Leda, holy, heads them, splendid chorus leader. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Well, hi, hello, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I still hate singing that. Uh, I am that woman who talks in your ear about all things ancient Greece. Live. That quote at the top was, if you can believe it, lines from Aristophanes' Lysistrata. Less of the comedic lines. It's found in an article called Pre-Classical Sparta as Song Culture by Claude Calame. I'm probably mispronouncing that, and translated from the French by James Roy. Uh, we can't find out exactly how the translation of the Greek happened, but it's from this article, and thus I have done my due diligence with copyright. And today I am here with more of Sparta because gods this series is fun and fascinating and gods there is just so so much to say about this ancient people for good and bad. Today though we're talking about mythology the thing that makes this podcast what it is but we're talking mythology of Sparta in many forms. It's not like I don't talk about certain regions in most episodes of this podcast. Like, I try to center these things in locations when they have them. And I try to feature the history of those regions wherever I can. But so often, myths aren't necessarily, like, about a certain place, even if the stories might feature a place. That's not always true, of course. There is Thebes, after all. But still, I'm rarely coming at these myths from a location-specific historical... Uh, standpoint? That was weird phrasing. But all to say, today's episode is that, and the stories within it are unique in that way. They're not all brand new, but what is new is this focus on Sparta and what these stories actually meant for the real ancient Sparta and its people. This is all about them and their weirdness, that Spartan mirage and all the oddities and confusions that it's inflicted upon us all. What that also means is that this episode isn't narrative-driven in the way that these myths normally are, because for the most part, I'm reminding you of particular myths, characters, and stories that are so deeply tied to Sparta, but which have typically already been covered pretty heavily on the podcast, with one major exception. Today, though, it's all about what makes those myths Spartan and what that means. I hope you're all enjoying this series as much as I am, because gods, it is so interesting, and learning this much about actual history is such a thrill. I cannot wait for you all to hear not only the rest of these narrative episodes, but also the conversations. Ugh, it's getting good. I mean, the last two were also so good. But the next two are just, they're diving into the really juicy stuff. Just you wait. Because that's not what today's episode about. Today is myths, mythology, and myth-making, and everything in between. All the stories that contributed to Sparta being so very weird.
episode 196, Mythology versus Mythmaking from the Heraclidae to Thermopylae. Surviving mythology of Sparta is both supremely interesting and quite lacking, at least in comparison to some of the other city-states of ancient Greece, particularly places like Thebes or even Athens. That isn't because Sparta didn't have their own mythology, their own oral storytelling tradition, but more so that we don't have a whole lot of it that survives. I imagine they must have had so much that just didn't get written down or didn't get preserved. Like, we know they had a really, really strong tradition of oral storytelling and singing these songs and poets and all of that. We just don't have a lot of the evidence of it. And often when it comes to Athens versus Sparta in terms of sourcing... Athens always wins out. Add to that that Sparta wasn't big on sharing its culture outside of Spartans, and you've got a recipe for lost works. But the myths that we do have that directly relate to Sparta are, fortunately, very interesting and tied directly to their origin stories. Namely, the story that you heard about just briefly in my conversation with Maria Pretzler, the Heraclidae, or the return of the children of Heracles, and the Dorian invasion or migration? Other than this origin story, which we know is a huge part of Spartan history and lore, the myths most famous to them are those that we know well, but we know them from the wider world of ancient Greece rather than Spartan sources. Characters like Tyndarius and Leda, who, along with Zeus, are the parents of Helen, Clytemnestra, and the Dioscori, the twins Castor and Polydeuces. Through them, we then tie in Menelaus, husband of Helen, who becomes a huge, huge part of Spartan culture. There was a major temple to Menelaus and Helen, and they often even like carried a statue or something like that of him when they went on military campaigns. It all adds this fascinating layer of Sparta utilizing the heroes that made them so incredibly famous amongst the other Greeks. Like Homeric heroes are really the epitome of ancient Greek defining culture, aside from Heracles, who is also going to be well represented, as I will tell you. But we don't actually know how they viewed those characters in their own oral storytelling, their own daily life and art beyond a handful of details. So today we're going to talk about these myths in whatever way that we can through sources that are not Spartan, but which tell us something about mythological Sparta. Traditional stories of mythological characters and concepts, like the things we normally focus on in this podcast, but as they relate to Sparta as a place and a people. And also Spartan myth-making, the stories they told about themselves, the things they wanted the other Greeks to think about them, including myth-making specifically around their most famous achievement, the Battle of 300 at Thermopylae. First, though, let's talk about those Spartan origins, the return of the children of Heracles. Now, this story is told in most detail in a play by everyone's favorite playwright, Euripides. Obviously, I can't be telling that whole play today because you just know I can barely make plays into three episodes these days, let alone one. But also, it's a particularly interesting story because it really only exists in much true detail in this Athenian play. And gods know we can't really trust the Athenians when it comes to Spartan lore. 
And well, they don't really center Sparta all that much in this in the play in the first place, and that makes it kind of all about Athens. Uh, so that one's for another time. Today we're going to talk about the basics of the story itself rather than the Athenian version, because again, we're talking Sparta. And the Athenian version, while interesting, kind of seems to leave out all the stuff that made this a a founding origin story for Sparta, or at least based on my brief research of that play. That's interesting in itself, but again, I'm not going to dwell on it much today because we're going to leave that for a future Euripides episode. So with apologies to my favorite ancient Greek writer, today we're looking at all the other sources that speak of the return of the children of Heracles. This is by far one of their most important stories, and again, as we learned briefly in the conversation episode with Maria Pretzler, essentially it's their origin story, and the origin story for much of the Peloponnese. How It's how they explain the transition between the Mycenaean period and the early Iron Age and Archaic periods. It's, it's how the Spartans saw themselves as being native to their own land, like meant to be there, meant to rule Laconia. It's all because they're descended from the children of Heracles. Let's think back to the play I covered at the beginning of last year, the Sophocles play called the Trichinii, which tells the story of Heracles and his last wife, Dianera. Of course, that play is mostly about Dianera, as is only right, but it features one of their children, too, Hylos. But beyond the play, we have these details of Heracles' story before he died. He made a deal with a king named Agimios. This man was a king of a small state called Doris in Thessaly. In return for this deal that they're making, Agimenos promised Heracles Dorian land, which Heracles asked to be held until his descendants made a claim on it. Like so many Heracles stories, this one is lacking in a lot of details, but the key points are clear and important. He is forging a connection with Dorians, and he's Heracles. Honestly, those are the only bits that really matter. Plus, what's most interesting in this story isn't the details itself, there aren't many, but what they mean for the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So try not to get too hung up on why things are happening here. This is an overview, because that's what we have. Because what's relevant is what happens, not the details of it. Story of my life when it comes to mythological sources. So with the background on this deal made by Heracles, we'll jump right ahead to once he has died, and we're going to return to his son with Dianera, Hylos, the one character in the family who survives the events of Sophocles' play, the Trachinii, and the events of the myth itself. This is when Heracles dies, and then Dianera dies, and it's their son, Hylos, who's left to pick up the pieces. That's when the play ends, but it's also where this story picks up. Hylos hears an oracle that says that he will be able to return to the Peloponnese and lay claim to its land after three years, or rather, three harvests. Regardless, the, the oracle is misinterpreted by Hylos because this is a myth, and when is the oracle not misinterpreted in myth? Instead of being able to return to the Peloponnese, where his father Heracles had spent so much of his time and youth, instead of that, Hylos is killed on the Isthmus of Corinth that tiny bit of land that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula to mainland Greece. He's killed there by the king of Tegea, one of the regions in the Peloponnese. 
and more time passes after the death of Heracles' son, and eventually his grandson, a man named Aristomachos, once again tries to return to the Peloponnese and lay claim to the region on behalf of his ancestors, Hylos and Heracles. But once again, this isn't what the oracle meant, and so Aristomachos is also killed there on the Isthmus. It's relevant, I think, too, that they're dying on the Isthmus, because essentially that is like the entrance to the Peloponnese, the threshold. It's like they can't even make it further than that bit of land that connects it to the rest of Greece. But with this further death, finally the descendants of Heracles are able to sort out what exactly the oracle meant by three harvests. She meant three generations of descendants of children of Heracles. So finally, if still a number of years later after this, descendants of Heracles, finally, finally, they make it past the Isthmus of Corinth. Now, it's not going to be as easy as just rolling in and taking the Peloponnese like they believe it is their birthright. But at the very least, they finally make it over the Isthmus without dying. So that's something. And then the rest of the trouble begins. The key piece, though, is that they're not alone in doing this. Firstly, there are three descendants of Heracles involved in this assault on the Peloponnese. Temenos, Cresfontes, and Aristodemos. Or Sometimes we move straight to Aristodemos' twin sons. That will be important. But again, they're not alone. They call on the Dorians now for help, calling in that favor Heracles earned so many generations ago. And so these three or maybe four or five men, along with a Dorian army and two Dorian leaders, make their way into the Peloponnese and they wage war on the people there. They win, as you might have expected, and once more, the details are both mostly missing and less than important, because the key is what they did once they'd won. They divide up the Peloponnesian Peninsula among these descendants of Heracles, or at least the southern part of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Temenos takes the city of Argos, Mycenae area, Cresfontes takes Mycenae, and Aristodemos, or his two sons, Eurysthenes and Procles, They take Laconia, Sparta. And the reason it's important that it may have been his twin sons, and certainly his twin sons are believed to have taken over at some point regardless, but it's that these twin sons then become the ancestors of the two kings of Sparta. These twin sons are the reason that there are two kings of Sparta, which is something that doesn't exist elsewhere in the ancient Greek world, and it's a super notable and important aspect of Spartan politics and history. It's really unique. They just had two kings ruling all the time. And so in the end, what all of this ends up meaning, both mythologically and historically, is that the leaders of those parts of the Peloponnese, the southern bits, the Argolid, Laconia, and Messenia, they all believed themselves to be ruling not only by divine right, but that they were also all descendants of the most important hero of the whole of the ancient Greek world, Heracles. For Sparta, it also meant that two kings were their divine right and a building block of their culture. That's what makes this myth more than a myth. That they assign so much of their history and political structure to this backstory. That and this Dorian invasion. Now, whether or not there ever actually was a Dorian invasion or even a Dorian migration is very much up for debate and 
seemingly, probably, never was a thing historically. But it does account for a huge swath of the belief structure not only of the ancient Peloponnese, but the rest of Greece, too. They use this mythological explanation to understand the changes that went on in the region, the decline of the Mycenaean people and the leftover palaces in places like Mycenae, Tiryns, and beyond. So they not only understood this story to account for their rule and that they were always meant to rule this region, but they use it to explain these like changes that they could f- physically see had happened historically in those regions. It's fascinating and kind of confusing. I hope I've made it clear. <laughs> But does any of this fit historically or even into the existing mythological time frame that we do have? Like, no. I mean, they've kind of left out the whole Trojan War here, which obviously features both Sparta and Mycenae very, very heavily. It does kind of feature in in terms of other versions and understandings, some of which we will get to. But during that war, Heracles is meant to be like only a generation gone, if that, by the time it's taking place. So reasonably, that would put Menelaus in this super awkward position of not being Spartan. Because certainly the Spartans then also believe themselves to be directly connected with Menelaus. So I don't totally understand all of the connections with the historical bit of this Heraclidae. And actually, in some accounts, they, they do try to weave in this generation of the Trojan War, like I said, by, by saying that one of the men who died trying to take back the Peloponnese was actually a grandson of Orestes, the famed son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. So, and Orestes was also, at some point, a king of Sparta. But then that doesn't really fit. Or maybe it's that the grandson was on the other side. Anyway, uh, can you tell I'm just working this all out in my head in this moment? The point is, even though I've read like eight different books on this, I don't totally understand it all. And that, my friends, is Spartan mythology. But regardless, they're really just trying to fit in not only every memorable name that they want to remain associated with as these Spartans, like the heroes of the Trojan War and Heracles, but they're accounting for the end of a cursed line in that family, too, by noting the death of Orestes' grandson. Like, they're allowing him to be part of things without bringing that epic cursed curse of the Tantalids, the Pelopidae, all of that, any further into Peloponnesian lore. It's interesting and confusing. All the same, it does feel like they're trying to just kind of squish in as much as possible while also accounting for what they saw as explicitly history. That is, the Dorian migration or invasion. Because they were very explicit in their belief that the Spartans and these other Peloponnesian people that I mentioned were Dorian. Particularly during the archaic and classical periods of ancient Greece, these ideas of original tribes were really prevalent. You have the Dorians, the Achaeans, who were in the northern part of the Peloponnese and saw themselves as one of the most ancient peoples of the region. Then there's the Ionians and the Aetolians. Obviously, there were loads of different city-states that fell within these categories, but it's how they distinguished themselves amongst the larger Greek world. This return of the Heraclidae is that Dorian origin. And again, it's also probably itself a myth rather than history. Of course, just like all of other Greek mythology, you don't want to bother yourself trying to sort out a timeline of events. That's just the nature of myth in a world where stories are being told over generations and centuries and, and often without ever getting written down for the record at all. Particularly where Heracles is involved, because 
As I say so many times on this podcast, everyone and their dog wanted to be connected with Heracles in some form, so they would bend over backwards to make it work mythologically. But regardless of all the confusion, what all of these details do is give these people a deeper connection to the regions in which they lived and ruled. It gives them this connection to Heracles and to the Earth itself. Now, how Heracles got to be so divinely connected to the Peloponnese is... It's also kind of confusing, or rather, requires some backstory and interpretation because he was born in Thebes. So that's the basics. But his father, at least his mortal father, Amphitryon, was exiled for killing his uncle. And then he took power in the Argolid in Tiryns, which was then usurped by Eurystheus's father. And then Eurystheus is the guy who got famous for sending Heracles on all those labors. Did I need to tell you all of that? I don't know, but now you know. And <laughs> does it does he actually seem to have any true claim to the region by blood or divine intervention? I mean, I guess it's a bit tenuous and odd given he ultimately definitely has claim to Thebes, but he's Heracles. So they don't care about these details. We just need to connect with Heracles. Because he's Heracles. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. not the most important name from the world of ancient Sparta. I would like to say that honor belongs to Helen, but we're talking dudes because of course we're talking dudes, in which case Menelaus. Menelaus wasn't Spartan to begin with. He's from Mycenae, so still an important Peloponnesian region and royal house, but not originally Spartan until he married Helen and really took on the mantle of Sparta. Before we ever get Menelaus, though, we have to have Helen. And before we have Helen, we have another famous king of Sparta and his even more famous wife, Tyndareus and Leda. I won't retell all of their story because I've covered it before in the Origin of the Trojan War episodes, along with others. And I want to make sure we talk enough about how they were famous in Sparta rather than just as famous mythological characters. Because unlike places like Athens, whose most famous characters and stories were developed much later, like Theseus, the famous people of Sparta are found in our earliest surviving sources from the ancient Greek world. There's a very big difference between being famous in Homeric epic versus being famous like Theseus. Now, I've done an entire episode on Helen, too, if if I recall. So listen back to those episodes if you want to know more about her as a character and an archetype and like really any and everything. Because today, we're looking at her and her family as Spartans. In order to reconcile timelines, there are some later sources that explain Tyndareus's rule of Sparta through Heracles himself. According to those versions, Heracles goes to war with the earlier rulers of the region and he installs his friend Tyndareus as king of Sparta when he wins. Just like the Heraclidae, this accounts for a king of divine right through this divinity that's inherent in Heracles. Heracles is the hero of heroes. He's the one the whole of the Greek world wanted to align themselves with. And so if you have a story where he makes you king, then you are certainly meant to be king. Now, again, eventually I will cover the whole of the Heraclidae play, the Euripides play, since it is our best surviving source for... I guess a detailed version. It's very specific, but I think by then we will be better prepared to understand the chronology that's later assigned to all of this. But for now, like this connection with installing Tyndareus is just another link to Heracles in the region and a link to the king who will then go on to spawn some of Sparta's most famous heroes and characters. We got to pull them all together. So Tyndareus marries a woman named Leda, and together they rule Sparta, and, well, they plan on putting out some kids. 
But we should all remember what makes Leda famous. Uh, it appears in art countless times over centuries and centuries because somehow it's one of those scenes that is able to be depicted as if it's beautiful rather than the absolute horror show that it actually would have been. Because if you'll recall, Zeus appears to Leda in the form of a swan. And they fuck while he's a swan. Now, ultimately, obviously, I think this canon should be described as assault, as rape. But as so often is the case in the ancient world, the idea of consent does not come into play in this myth, at least. In the real world, thank the gods, they did, I think, generally understand the concept of consent. But regardless of how inherently horrifying as it would have been to have a swan come for you in that way, the children they have are depicted not only as the children of Zeus, but the children of Zeus in this very unique and important way. And by that I mean, yeah, they're born from eggs chill stuff. But what makes Leda's encounter with Zeus unique isn't just that he was a swan and that she laid eggs. It's that very shortly after she was with Zeus, possibly on the same night, she was also with her husband, Tyndarius. And so Leda became pregnant with a whole slew of children in that moment because biology. She eventually gives birth to two eggs, but uh, who was in each egg and what that meant for them, deity-wise, is... It quite varied. <laughs> there are four children in the end. That much we know for sure. Leda's children are Helen and Clytemnestra and Castor and Polyduques. Castor and Polyduques are always twins, the Dioscori. Sometimes one of them is divinely the son of Zeus and not the other. Sometimes they're both the sons of Zeus, but only one is like officially divine. And But often, even though this is true of them, they're also referred to as the sons of Tyndarius. The same is true for Helen. She's definitely the child of Zeus and Leda, but also referred to as a daughter of Tyndarius. Though this is more in name than blood, it's just that patriarchal way of connecting her with mortality through a man, I guess. And Clytemnestra? Well, she's just, like, not talked about much at all. Certainly not considered to be divine. We can generally understand her to be the daughter of Leda and Tyndarius. Also, apparently, seemingly from an egg. Clearly, as I've indicated, the origins of these four children of Leda have to be some of the most confusing and convoluted pieces from Greek myth. They are just messy. There are too many sources and none of them line up. And just to make it even messier, I will also point out that there are some sources that have Leda and Tyndarius having another few children that are never figure into anything, but also maybe were around. <sighs> mythology. Fortunately for us, this genealogy isn't what we're most concerned with today, and thus why I'm only laying it out in these brief and deeply confusing terms. Again, I've talked about it more in past episodes. Episodes on the origin of the Trojan War and on the Dioscori, the twins that become the zodiac sign Gemini. Also in episodes devoted to Helen herself, there are so much. It's well-trod territory. What we care about today is how and why they were Spartan and what that means for the very real people of ancient Sparta. So the twins, the Dioscori, become some of the most important Spartan heroes. Like so many stories of heroes from myth, they end up kind of slotted in to some of the more famous stories from the broader ancient Greek world. The Dioscori take part in the Argonautica, the quest for the Golden Fleece, alongside Jason and his many, many Argonauts. And later, when the myths of Theseus are developed to ensure Athenian importance amongst the wider mythology of the region, these Spartan heroes become part of that as well. They're a fascinating pair because we know that they were super important, like really defining in terms of at least Spartan mythos, if not the wider Greek world, but they don't actually appear in much detail in surviving stories. 
they take part here and there, but nothing that survives is like really ultimately about them. But speaking of stories where they feature, as I've mentioned so very many times, Theseus's absolute worst quality and his most horrifying moment of myth is when he decides that he wants to marry a daughter of Zeus and that that daughter is Helen, regardless of the fact that in the very kindest of the versions of this story, she is 12. Uh, He kidnaps her and hides her away in a palace in Attica, where she's eventually rescued by these brothers, the Dioscori twins, who lay siege to Theseus's palace in this, like, epic war with the Athenians. The story doesn't feature in much detail anywhere, but it's super important to both Sparta and Athens, and eventually kind of lays the groundwork for the Peloponnesian War, when Sparta goes to war with Athens. Like, it becomes this sort of mythical origin story for a feud and eventually a war itself. So through this family, Tyndarius and Leda, their children, Helen, Clytemnestra, and the Dioscori, we have these incredibly ancient characters. Characters that feature heavily in the oldest stories that survive, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And through them, Sparta gets this, like, epic history. More than any other myths, these stories are considered to be, like, at least in their own way, history. They may not be Spartan stories originally, but they become Spartan stories. Like, as I mentioned, there was this temple to Menelaus and Helen in Sparta, possibly even at a site that was originally a temple to just Helen. She was worshipped, he was worshipped, and the Dioscori were worshipped, all as heroes of the lands where the Spartan people went on to develop their own culture, a culture that they then considered to be the most important thing about them. Everything in life revolved around being a Spartan and participating in Spartan life in the same way that everyone before you had done all the way back to people like Helen and Menelaus. And again, you might wonder where Clytemnestra comes in. Frankly, given the sourcing, I probably could have even left her out of my telling entirely, but gods know I wouldn't do that because even though the Spartans didn't seem to really claim her as their own or care about her that much, I will love her always. But that's basically it. Like, they didn't really say that she wasn't Spartan, but they also didn't really connect with her as a Spartan. And certainly not in the way they connected with Helen. Clytemnestra moved away and married a Mycenaean, so maybe that contributed to it. Or, you know, it was just like that time that she murdered him in the bath after he'd won the most important war in ancient Greek history and mythology. Either way, she just kind of uh, doesn't feature. But we can love her as a Spartan woman, like I certainly do. But what about mythology of Sparta that isn't quite mythology? Or rather, isn't what we think of as mythology? Isn't the type of mythology that I typically talk about on the podcast? Today, we are also talking about Spartan myth-making, because that is absolutely a thing they did with fascinating and unbelievable success. So let's just talk a little bit about Thermopylae and those famous 300 Spartans. When we talk about the myths surrounding the Battle of Thermopylae and the 300 Spartans, like I think a lot of people would assume that the myths, this idea of myth, comes from things like Hollywood, maybe, from the minds behind the movie 300 or something like that. Or even like if we're stretching back to the ancient world, I think 
the assumption would be that if something is like a myth about that battle, then it probably came from someone like Plutarch writing during the Roman period or even Herodotus, the Greek historian who was very much not a Spartan, but was writing not that long after all of these things happened. Basically, I think the assumptions would be that these are myths that evolved around the idea of Sparta, but arose so much later around these sort of misconceptions, rather than something that Sparta did by itself and for itself. Does that make any sense? I hope it will soon. Because, I mean, that's not not true. (laughs) But I think the most important, interesting aspect of all of this is that the myths surrounding Sparta, particularly surrounding Thermopylae and the 300, were in large part created by Sparta itself to mythologize themselves, to turn themselves into something that they weren't naturally. They created a whole mythos around Thermopylae in a direct bid to make themselves more intimidating, more impressive, to make the whole of the world think that they were some kind of super soldiers, a people obsessed with war and training, an unbeatable force that no one would wish to go up against. Obviously, their own mythmaking worked super, super well, too, because even today, there's still that image of these ancient people. But, like, it wasn't true, at least until they made it true as much as they were able to. Ancient Sparta took what happened at Thermopylae and the image of themselves that they could pull from those events, and they turned it into something much, much bigger, something much, much more impressive. And it stuck all the way up until today. The gist of what happened at the Battle of Thermopylae, for those who might not be aware, is that there was this narrow bit of land between the regions of Phokis and Malice, which has been, it had been used successfully in the past to deter invasions of Greece because it was like a little spot that was easily defendable by the Greeks. So when the Persian invasion was imminent, the Greeks sent a force of men to defend the pass at Thermopylae, the hot gates. They lost. The Persians killed them all. But by and large, history remembers it not only as like kind of a victory, but more specifically, what popular history remembers is this, these 300 Spartans that remained at the pass to defend it and who gave their lives in that attempt. In truth, there were almost certainly more than 300 Spartans there, let alone others who stayed and weren't Spartan. The sources don't agree on numbers, and even when that number is 300, it's used to describe legitimate Spartan citizens, those Spartiates, whereas there were almost certainly like the same number, if not more, of what the Spartans called Perioikoi, who I mentioned last week. Those are people, free people, not enslaved, who lived in Laconia, in Sparta, basically, but who weren't technically Spartans. Add to that the likelihood that the Thespians and the Thebans, at least some of them, also stayed behind at Thermopylae to defend the Greek mainland, and you've got like a whole enormous collection of people that were there. And none of that includes the enslaved population that were there alongside the soldiers. The number of helots could have been like anywhere from the same number of Greeks to countless more. They just never counted them as humans that were there. 
The point you need to take away is the sheer number of people that arrived to defend this pass. And that even when they knew they were doomed and many were sent away, only a smaller number remained there to continue defending them basically to their deaths. It still, even then, was not just 300 Spartans that sacrificed themselves. There's a great article that I've linked to in this episode's description. Again, it's from Bad Ancient. Super simple and lays out all the different versions of who was there, who stayed, and the sourcing that provides all of these different numbers. All of which are more than 300 Spartans. (laughs) And in the end, like I said, they did all die. They lost the Battle of Thermopylae and the Persians moved into mainland Greece. Of course, eventually the Greeks did fend them off, but it wasn't at that narrow pass, and while it was certainly heroic that so many people chose to die there for their homeland, or were forced to because they were enslaved, the stories of that moment remain really deceptive. The idea that it was only Spartans who were brave enough, willing to risk it all, or even worse, this I- there's this idea that it was like a victory in a sense. We'll talk about this more in this week's conversation episode what it means, really, that sometimes Thermopylae is viewed as a victory, even up until today. But then, then came the explicit propaganda. This too, I will be talking about more with future guests on the podcast, and certainly I spoke about it last week with Rule. But what came after Thermopylae is nothing less than like intentional Spartan propaganda. Basically, they realized the fame that they had earned by having some of their people die at Thermopylae, and they noted what it could do for their general reputation amongst the Greeks. So firstly, they set up a monument at the spot where the Greeks died. Herodotus tells us that there was first a monument to the Greeks that were there, and it read, quote, Here 4,000 from the Peloponnese once fought 3 million. By the way, the number 3 million is definitely not true. Refer to last week's conversation episode for details on that. But he also says that the Spartans then set up an epitaph of their own, emphasizing the Spartan importance at that battle. And it read, quote, Foreigner, go tell the Spartans that we lie here obedient to their commands. Now, firstly, there is obviously so much of the history that I am leaving out so much nuance and detail. There are angry dudes screaming at me right now. I just know it. And I am going to talk about more of that history. But that is also what the conversation episodes are for, for people who know it better than me. And I will say that this these epitaphs do seem to explicitly leave out the non-Peloponnesians that went to Thermopylae, including Thespians and Thebans, both from Boeotia. But Herodotus also had a bone to pick with the Thebans, so who knows? There's just so much. Regardless from there, both intentionally and otherwise, the Spartans appear to have made Thermopylae their legacy. They realized what it got them to be considered the type of Greeks that were willing to die for their freedom, let alone to defend the whole Greek world against so-called millions of Persians. They leaned into this idea. They let the Greek world and beyond see them that way, and they really emphasized it. You don't have to be the best at war and battle to win. Having an enemy think that you are the best is going to help immensely, regardless of your actual skill. 
And that isn't to say the Spartans weren't skilled. But as I talked about extensively with Rule last Friday, they weren't some kind of unbeatable army. They just had some more time on their hands. And later they had a whole lot of propaganda and myth-making to lead the way, to like set the stage for them. And again, I won't go too deep into this because it's a better topic for my guests. And certainly Rule introduced it really, really well last week. But I wanted to make sure that it's included in this episode because this idea of myth-making, of the Spartans intentionally setting out to convince the world that they were special, that they were better, scarier warriors than everyone else, is not only a fascinating idea, but it also really explains so much of what we think we know of them now. Certainly, much of what we know comes from the ancient sources, people like Herodotus and Thucydides, Xenophon, and later Plutarch. But those ancient people were influenced by what the Spartans wanted them to be influenced by. Their actual, the actual Spartan world was so hidden away and secretive, their culture so based in preserving their way of life, including their Helot population, that so much of what was written about them could and should be questioned for accuracy even now. They wanted to keep people out. They wanted to keep their population strong and their helots under control. They wanted to avoid going to war as much as possible because that inherently destabilized their culture. If they weren't there to enforce the enslavement of the Helots, they were considerably more likely to have an uprising on their hands. And the more Spartans that died in battle, the smaller their population became, which was already a problem due to how strict they were about like all things Spartan. So it was easier to create a narrative of strength and power of unstoppable super soldiers that no one should dare to question. It was easier to do that than it was to actually fight and win battles. Not to say they didn't, but they tried to avoid fighting at all costs, instead like choosing to spread this myth of themselves so that people didn't even want to stand up to them to begin with, or by having allied states fight on their behalf. Like They really avoided it in a fascinating way. Again, so much more in conversations. But also all of this... like worked for a while. The Spartans of classical Greece, that is specifically the time period after the Persian Wars, this, this Battle of Thermopylae, they, during that time, they became the most powerful state of ancient Greece. They defeated Athens in the Peloponnesian War, and they were the big powerhouse of the time. Until, slowly, their endless decline in population and their inability to keep that population stable caused them to fall apart. They were crushed in the Hellenistic period, and then by the time the Romans came around to colonize Greece, Sparta was just a random state with a whole lot of incredible famous history for the Romans to enjoy. So I'll say it again, and frankly, like I, I won't need to find good sourcing on this, but I have heard so many academics reference it that I need to tell you. But the city of Sparta became a kind of theme park for Romans, a place where so little actual power remained, where so few official Spartans still resided, that it was like better off or certainly like easily used by wealthy Romans as a place to simply cosplay Sparta. Like they would go there and like cosplay this historic, this 
such famous culture. They would cosplay the famous 300, these unbeatable warriors of Spartan history that had by that time just dwindled into nothingness. Well, nerds, this episode was messier than I'd hoped. Turns out trying to talk about Spartan mythology is just as baffling as trying to talk about anything else to do with Sparta. (laughs) I could have spent a year researching this series and still not had a great grasp on everything, but gods know I do too much else for the podcast to get even close to that. Thank the gods for my conversation episodes because, frankly, with these narrative ones, I am trying to convey so much information but squished into, like, already the longest scripts that I ever do. Uh, And I know it can be confusing, particularly when there's just one person telling you a bunch of stuff. So I hope you're enjoying the conversations even more so because they were, oh my god, so fun and so interesting. Thank the gods for my guests, Uh, particularly because, yeah, this series is considerably trickier to navigate than than the Atlantis one. So I hope uh, it's been enjoyable and interesting. It's certainly interesting to me to learn, but uh, perhaps a bit trickier to convey it to all of you in only five episodes. In any case, I am uh, having fun, so I hope you are, too. Once again, I'll remind you all that there will be a Spartan Q&A episode at the end of this. So submit your questions, clarifications, uh, requests for me to be less confusing and weird to mythsbaby.com slash questions. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) And as always, let's end this with a five-star review by one of you amazing listeners. Please consider leaving me one, too. Uh, It helps the show keep going, new people to keep finding it, and it makes me happy. And with all the damn work I put into this thing, why wouldn't you want to make me happy? (laughs) All right, this one is from a username that is basically just a bunch of consonants thrown together, so I will not be attempting to pronounce it, but they are from Sweden, so that's fun. Absolutely amazing. I've always been interested in Greek myths and mythology generally, and I was looking for a good podcast to listen to, and this came up. I am absolutely hooked. The storytelling is fantastic, and it really shines a new light on the gods and goddesses. Thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> Let's Talk About Myths Baby is li- written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. For this series, honestly, Michaela gets an extra special shout-out. I should be saying that it's written by her as well. It's written by both of us, this Spartan series. That is for sure. Thank the gods for Michaela. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. Help me to continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all. You are all the best. I am Liv and I love this shit. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian.